You have to know what you're good at. You have to know what you still need to learn. You have to set goals for yourself every year for how you're going to improve. Take your performance reviews very seriously. Know when a situation may not be right for you and you need to move on. But also know when you may need to stay and dig in and get better at what you do. I'm Carly Zakin. And I'm Danielle Weisberg. Welcome to 9 to 5-ish with The Skin. We've run into so many questions over the years and had so many moments where we needed advice and we got it from women who'd been there. And that's what we're bringing you with this show. Each week, we're helping you get what you want out of your career by talking to the smartest leaders we know. Because we know your work life is a lot more than nine to five. All right, let's get into it. Today, our guest is Dana Kennedy. She's an award-winning reporter who spent two decades with the New York Times and was one of the lead reporters on its 2001 series on race in America, which won a Pulitzer Prize. Dana also published a best-selling memoir following the tragic death of her fiancé in combat in Iraq in 2006. The book is a letter to their son, and it's about to become a movie. She's since gone on to two big firsts, becoming the first person of color, the youngest ever, and first female administrator of the Pulitzer Prize. And last year, she became the first Black person to head up a major U.S. publishing imprint as publisher and senior vice president at Simon & Schuster. Dana, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So before we get into the conversation, we like to warm things up with a lightning round so we can get to know you better. Quick questions, quick answers. Ready? Mm Mm-hmm. First job on your resume. Oh my gosh. I was a waitress at a steakhouse in Kentucky. Do you have any secret hobbies or skills? I haven't had a lot of time to do it lately, but I love to make jewelry. Ooh. Oh, what do you make? Mostly earrings out of beads. And it's been forever since I've had a chance to do it. Do you take a special order? I actually just make it for fun and for like friends for the holidays or birthdays. But it's been so long since I've had a chance to do that. What best describes your work day? Working nine till blank. Oh my gosh. Last night it was 10 o'clock at night. Tonight it's going to be probably later. I started this morning in a sales marketing meeting. I had to approve book covers. I did a planning meeting for the movie premiere. I had a staff meeting. I'm doing this interview. And then after this, I have another meeting with Sony about the movie. And I have to get in my car, drive to Brooklyn, and go do a dress fitting for the premiere and come back and work on a sales presentation I have to give tomorrow at 9 a.m. All right. Busy time for you. What's something we can't Google about you? That I am a horrible dancer, but you couldn't tell me that because I swear when I'm dancing, I think I'm like J-Lo or someone until I see a video and I'm mortified, either a video or my son's face. Nobody should ever see a video of themselves dancing unless you are J-Lo. I mean, I will say I feel the same way. And I think that's how you should feel about yourself when you're dancing. Yeah, I'm really better dancing sitting down. When I get up, it just somehow doesn't all come together. <laughs> I, I agree. I really feel the beat in my chair, and then it doesn't quite match. Well, like you can totally move in your chair, but then you get up and like things just go different directions. It's, it's uh, not pretty. <laughs> okay. I want to know, like, given you're a very intellectual person, you're a very esteemed person in the publishing world, 
you get to read either a trashy romance novel or a trashy thriller. Which one do you choose? Gosh, trashy romance any day of the week. I'm a huge sucker for a romance. Everyone is different. That's why I have to ask the question. Look, I can't even remember the last time I read a romance novel, but that hypothetical would be fun to like be on a beach somewhere reading that. But lately I've been reading serious things, you know, anything by Bob Woodward, I devour. And because I sign authors now, I'm, I'm obsessed with Laura Coates and a book that she's about to write. She's the CNN legal analyst. I, you know, as you know, wrote my own book, but I love championing the books of other people. What's something you do that sparks joy? Ah, uh, look at my son. When he walks in the door, wakes up in the morning, that's all I need in life. I don't need anything else. I live and breathe for him. That's a beautiful answer. Thank you. That is a beautiful answer. How does taking time to slow down fuel you to move forward? I don't have luxury right now slowing down. I think it's important to have balance, and I've tried to do that in my life. Right now, I'm trying to take advantage of this huge opportunity to tell the world about patriotism and military sacrifice and my sweet, sweet Charles, while also having the privilege of running the Simon & Schuster imprint. And so I feel like I need sleep. There will be time for that later. What is the last text message you sent? To my son, just about 10 minutes ago, saying, be safe on the way home from basketball practice. All right. I want to get into your career. We're going to take it all the way back. How did you get started in journalism? I started writing when I was about 12 years old, short stories and poems and so forth. I grew up in a small town in Kentucky and I knew I wanted to be a writer. I thought I would be writing novels in New York. In fact, in my high school memory book, it says I'll be a writer in New York in 10 years. And as it came time to go to college, I realized, you know, there was more job security in journalism. So I combined my two loves, writing and asking my favorite question, why? I'm just very curious about everything in the world and I love people. And so I combined those things and became a journalist. And I knew that the way to compete coming out of school, and I would tell any young person this now, is internships, internships, internships. And so I went to the University of Kentucky, majored in journalism. And by the time I left journalism school, I had done five internships. The first two, I literally called up the papers and said, can I work for you for free? Dan, I'm going to interrupt you because this is a career podcast and we talk a lot about people's beginning stories and a lot of people do cold calling. But I think when people listen to that, they're like, literally, like, what do you say? So I want to do a little bit of role play here. I'm going to pretend I'm, you know, answering the phone. Hi, this is Carly. Can I help you? Hi, Carly. May I speak with your editor? They're not available. Then I'd like to send an email. Can I have an email address? You can send it to the generic inbox. Okay, I'll do that. But I also would like to speak with the reporter who wrote the story this morning about the new strand of coronavirus. I'm a student at the local university, and I was inspired by both the level of reporting in that piece and the writing and would love to ask some questions. I know that your editors and your reporters are likely dedicated to the next generation of journalists. And so I'd like to get on their radar. Well, you got me hooked because I'm like, all right, I want to put her on the phone with somebody else. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, how did you get your foot in the door? What did you say? No, literally, I called and said, can I speak with someone on I think it was the city desk at the time. 
They put me through to whoever answered the phone. And I said, hi, I'm a student at the University of Kentucky. I'm looking for an internship. They said, our internships are already full. We've already chosen our interns. I said, could I work for free? And they said, of course. (laughs) Not literally, but that got me in the door. And especially now in the profession that I'm in where resources are so thin, if you're offering free services, people are going to give you an opportunity to at least talk to them. But the point is, once I landed it, my resume did not say free intern. It said intern. So what I had was clips, you know, of my works, and I had references. I had editors, and I was a sophomore. I had editors who were willing to vouch for me, and I had work. And so I did the same thing a second time. And after doing that two times, I went to a job fair at my school, and the Wall Street Journal was there. And they said, oh, my gosh, you're a sophomore, and you've already done two internships? That led to a paid internship at the Wall Street Journal, And then, you know, I went from there. Every other internship was paid. And so by the time I got out of school and I knew I would be competing with people from Harvard and other places, they may have had Harvard degrees, but they didn't have five internships. And I was the only intern that summer at the Wall Street Journal to have a front page story. So all of those things combined helped launch my career. What's something you still carry from your intern days? It's something I say all the time and I try to practice myself. You have to, first of all, Just master and own the basics of your profession. If you're working with really smart people, which I've been fortunate enough to do, they will always see through it if you don't know what you're doing. You don't have to know everything, but you have to constantly get better year after year, and you have to master the basics. I still make mistakes, but you have to really be good at what you do over and over and over and over again, because that creates credibility and goodwill in your workplace. And that will always get you noticed. There are no shortcuts to success. You have to put in the work. I learned that early on as an intern and I carry that with me now. And the thing is, no one expects you to know everything, but they expect you to put in the work, be curious about what you're doing and ask questions. People really do like to help. People think that you are really smart if you let them do all the talking. And so ask a ton of questions. And so I transitioned from being a journalist to running the Pulitzer Prizes to my role in Simon & Schuster, which was good for me because I had to, again, learn what I didn't know. I was transitioning to a new industry. I knew why they were hiring me for my leadership and my vision. But the basics of the logistics and the language of a new industry, I had to learn. And that was actually healthy because the other thing I've learned is that when you get too comfortable, it's time to challenge yourself. And that's what I did by coming to Simon & Schuster. I want to go back to just the transition between, you know, you became a Pulitzer Prize winning reporter at the New York Times and you transitioned into running the Pulitzer. I always think what is fascinating to me, and partly because we come from the journalism world, is this transition that we see a lot of people do from being a reporter which is sometimes you're working on a team, but a lot of it is on you to then being in a position where you are managing people and just how different that is. How did you start to build those skills? Well, I made the transition actually at the times because I went from being a journalist to being an editor and then being promoted several times. So by the time I left the times to run the Pulitzer's, I had plenty of management experience I think the thing to do when you're making that transition is to realize that there's a learning curve and that there's also a time when, particularly if you're being promoted into a leadership role, where people have to start to see you in a different context. That's really hard, especially for young women who often aren't taken as seriously. As you start to go through the ranks, people who you were your colleagues, you suddenly become their boss. And you have to be patient with yourself. 
and with them as you make that transition, but also own your leadership role, fill up the room, fill up that space. And so I remember when I was making the transition at the Times from a reporter into editing, and I said to someone, oh my goodness, this is a big leap. And she turned to me and she said, look, they put you in the cockpit, now fly the sucker. And that's what I did. You have to believe in yourself or you can't expect anybody else to believe in you. And the other thing is I'm a huge believer in fake it till you make it. You know, I've told this story a million times. When I left the Times, I taught management training, and I used to talk about this a lot. One of my first jobs out of college, I applied for a job at the Miami Herald at the time, and it was owned by this chain, and they used to give a written psychological exam. It's like a two, three-page exam. And I remember saying, what are you looking for? And they said, insecure overachievers. And the thing about that is, if you're an overachiever, you're running on that hamster mill faster than most people can run. But if you're insecure, you don't know it, and so you're going to run even faster. And the world is made up of insecure overachievers. And so if you are an insecure overachiever, and everybody from time to time has imposter syndrome, I know I did. The first time I walked into the New York Times newsroom, got on that elevator to ride up, I was like, oh my gosh, they actually gave me this job. Now I have to do it. And so that's okay to feel that way. And what you have to do is you have to have people who will support you. You have to find mentors who will help you along the way and fake it until you make it. And eventually you will feel more like an achiever than an insecure overachiever. A big part of your story has to do with your personal life. And that's not what most reporters are used to experiencing. I first would love for you just to kind of skim your personal journey. So I was engaged to be married to a absolutely amazing man named Charles. I was a reporter at the times. He was a military leader. I never really wanted to get married or have kids. Suddenly I was turning 40. He was going off to the war. We got engaged and I said, I think I want to have a baby. And so he said, yes. And I said, well, okay, when you come back from the war, you know, we'll try to have a baby. And he said, no, I might not come back. Let's not wait. And so the entire time he was in the war in Iraq, I was pregnant with our son, Jordan, and he wrote a 200-page journal to him. He became obsessed with this journal. How to choose a wife, the power of prayer, appreciate all people, favorite Bible verses. And he ended it with a letter that essentially said, this is everything I could think of to teach you to be a man if I don't make it home. He got to come home once for two weeks to meet him, and then he went back to pack up and was killed in a roadside explosion. I had only been back from maternity leave at the New York Times for two weeks. I had a six-month-old baby. I was breastfeeding. My whole world fell apart. And so when something like that happens, you have two choices. Let it break you, which it almost would have for me. When I got the news that he died, I literally collapsed on the floor screaming. So the hardwood floor, I'll never forget it. But you have two choices. You stay there or get up. And I might have stayed there a lot longer, except I had this baby that needed me. So I got up. And then eventually I had to realize I had to do something with my grief. And I channeled it into writing because that's always been healing for me. But in addition, I realized I was the only national reporter in the country who had gotten that knock at the door and the military show up to tell you that you've lost a loved one. And I wanted people in this country to understand what that experience is like and what military families go through every day without people writing about them. And so I wrote about it. I didn't necessarily want to be public. But I thought that was important to do. And I remember one of my colleagues, after reading that, wrote me an email saying, our readers will demand a book. And that's what happened. So if I have to put myself out there and be public for the sake of this larger story that's not just about me, I'm willing to do that. First of all, so sorry that you had that loss. And Charles sounds like he was an amazing man and father. 
second of all, what a gift that he left you both to have thought to put that together. But when you made that choice, you know, either stay on the floor or get up off the floor. At what point do you think that you realized you were part of the story, that it wasn't just, let's just publish this journal. Like you could have published the journal as is and just been, you know, here's a story of something that happened in Iraq and of a, a man and letters to his son. How did you make the decision to realize that you needed to put your part out there? I did that for very selfish reasons. I needed something to help me heal and cope. And writing, getting it out, writing my story, my experience helped. But also I wanted to find a way to explain all this to my son. And so my book, A Journal for Jordan, Jordan Being Our Son, which is now the title of the movie starring Michael B. Jordan and directed by Denzel Washington. Literally the book that led to that, every chapter starts Dear Jordan. He was my ultimate reader and the person that I was writing to. And that kept it real and honest and authentic and all of that. But I realized the story was more powerful with me telling it authentically in my voice from my experience. And so I was willing to put myself out there to do it. I think one of the most powerful aspects of your story is that you were able to take, obviously, a horrific personal tragedy and turn it into your work. And, you know, in a lot of ways, I think this calling to get your story out. I feel like anyone who is going through grief, I think you recognize that like if that is a high compliment in a shitty circumstance that you can turn it into something. That's exactly right. Looking back, what can you offer to people that are listening and trying to find their path through that dark time where they don't know if they can get up off the floor? I am so glad you asked me that. I think that's the most important question I've been asked in a really long time. I would say two things. Life is cyclical, whether you're dealing with a medical situation or a financial situation and you feel stuck and frustrated, you have to know that life is cyclical and things will change, even when you think they won't. If you can find one thing to hold on to, do that. The second thing I would say, I've said this to a lot of people, is success in your life looks different at different points in your life, depending on what you're going through. So the day that I got a call from the search committee of the Pulitzer Prizes asking me if I was interested in this job, and the day they offered it to me was a hugely successful day, right? The day Charles died, getting off the floor was success. A week later, finding the fortitude to get out of bed and brush my teeth was success. I mean that. That was successful. And so meet yourself where you are and realize that success is going to look different at different points in your life. If the day you get out of bed, take a shower, brush your teeth, have a meal, and sit down to go back to work happens for you when you feel like you can't go on, that is a truly successful day and you should reward yourself and pat yourself on the back for that. I totally agree. When you thought about this journey, and I'm assuming you know it is a journey from where you started with this journal to now what it's about to be. What is it like for you looking back at the journal? Are there more parts that you resonate with now or now that it's also become part of your story and your son's story and and kind of part of your professional journey as well? How do you look at it? I don't spend a lot of time reflecting on the me part of it at all. I take what I'm doing very seriously, but not myself. And I feel 
You used the word calling, Danielle, and that's exactly right. I feel like I've been called to this work and I'm using it for a purpose beyond myself. Denzel, who's the director, and I've talked a lot about this, that if we can help people in various ways through this movie and through the story, then that would be reward enough. And so, for example, I had a young lady, a teenager, I think she was, write to me after reading my book years ago from Saudi Arabia, Muslim young lady, and she said, I now know how to choose a husband. I have had soldiers tell me when they come to hear me speak that they're taking journals with them to the Middle East when they're deployed. I have had people tell me the book has helped to heal them in their own tragedies. I spoke once to 450 grieving military families, and I'll never forget this woman pounding on my chest, sobbing, saying he was only a baby. I need my baby back. I need my baby, you know, and telling those folks, look, I've been where you are. And the next day, I remember being at the hotel and watching them read the book, and some of them saying it was comforting to them. You know, people want to ask me about red carpets and celebrities. I don't care about any of that. For me, it's about those moments, and I think we're going to reach even more people with the movie. Dana, I was not expecting to be emotional on this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) I was. I'm like, (laughs) how could we not be? We've talked to a lot of people who have a lot of, you know, amazing stories. And I think this is the first time you really, really got me. Oh, thank you. I do think that so much of what goes underreported and not just from a journalism perspective, but just stories that aren't told or told in the right way are from military families. Yes. From the time that you lost your fiance to looking at what military families are going through today, what should people know about it? And I think a lot of people who don't know that world or haven't been in it don't know how to contextualize it and also don't know what they're going through. The sacrifices that these people make, both the soldiers and their families, is truly remarkable. I think the thing I'm always mindful of is that we sort of worship sometimes the wrong heroes. You know, it's great if somebody can play basketball or throw a football, but someone who's willing to miss their child's birth because they're at a war zone, someone who's willing to sit down with their family and say, I may never come back because they believe in the country, regardless of what we may be going through politically, It doesn't matter, but that will defend our ideals, our constitution, our rights to disagree with each other, our rights to come together as Americans, defend democracies that are flourishing in countries elsewhere. Those are the heroes. And a lot of folks don't know military people. They're proud, they're strong, they're honorable, and they deserve all of our respect. This show is about people's careers. And obviously, so much of your career journey has been intertwined with the personal showing up with you at work and you turning it into a survival tactic and your own story. When you look at your career and where it's taken you from the times to where you are today, how do you reflect on the pivots that you made and the choices you made that got you to where you are now? I think... I didn't realize this early on, but I'm really flexible and open-minded, and that will serve you well personally and professionally to go with it. You do not hear that from a lot of like senior leaders. (laughs) That is like probably the last adjective you hear to describe like a CEO or a senior leader. That's 
the first time we've had someone on the show that has ever mentioned that quality. Huh. So the last two big positions that I ended up in, the Pulitzer Prizes and at Simon Schuster, I didn't apply for those jobs. But I thought, huh, okay, this is interesting. I think this would be cool and fun and all of that. And somebody said to me, well, weren't you intimidated or scared about going into those? Absolutely not. I'm well prepared. I've been working hard for decades. And so believe in yourself. Like, it's hard to do that in the early days because you're still figuring out where the bathroom is and what you're supposed to be doing every day. At the New York Times, they used to have this, well, they still do some version of it, the front page meeting where all the biggest editors would go in and pitch their top stories for the day. And I was so intimidated in that when I'd have to go to that meeting on occasion to fill in that I used to ask my boss to send me because I needed to get over that fear. And it's okay to feel like an insecure overachiever. You have to know what you're good at. You have to know what you still need to learn. You have to set goals for yourself every year for how you're going to improve. Take your performance reviews very seriously. The criticisms of you, know when a situation may not be right for you and you need to move on, but also know when you may need to stay and dig in and get better at what you do. And I still do that myself all the time. And so I think the thing is, find something you enjoy doing and then just really work at it. I love how you talked about the goals every year. Do you still do that? I set professional goals mostly. I've achieved most of my personal goals. And there's still things that I'd like to do, places I'd like to see in the world, things I'd like to do with my son, some other things like that. But professionally speaking, right now, my goal is obviously to support my staff at Simon & Schuster to make sure that my vision for what we're doing there is clear and that they understand it, that they're enthusiastic and excited about it, and that we can execute at a high level, continuing to promote our authors who are just some of the most amazing authors in the world. But one of my most immediate professional goals is to really, really prayerfully enhance this movie experience. Not for me, but I don't forget those people who I've met along the way who've been touched or helped or influenced by the book. And if I can harness that and multiply that effect, then that would feel meaningful to me. And that's what I'm focusing on. I want to wrap up with a listener question from Lauren. Lauren wants to know, how did you build a professional network and build trust with your peers in a new industry when you made the jump into publishing? So it wasn't the first time I did that. The first time I had to do it was at the New York Times. And so it doesn't really matter what profession you're in or where. What you do is you have to show up every day prepared to give your all. I think the first year or two I was at the Times, I'm not even sure if I took vacation. And I'm not saying don't take your time because I'm a believer in work-life balance. But at the beginning, you have to just, you have to work your you-know-what off. And you have to do it consistently time and time and time again so that you are seen as the go-to person. You're seen as somebody who's dependable. You create credibility and goodwill so that when you do make a mistake, it's okay because it comes on top of a lot more success. And so I do that in my personal life and in my professional life. I try to do that. And you just keep working at getting better every year. Otherwise, you're just stagnant. And what's the point? Dana, thank you for everything. We wish you so much well-deserved success and luck with the premiere as you embark on this. And happy holidays. Thank you. Thank you, ladies, for having me very much. I really appreciate it. It's been a joy talking to you. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of 9 to 5-ish with The Skim. A new episode will be in your feed again next Wednesday. In the meantime, check out our news podcast, Skim This. Every Thursday, we cover what you need to know each week in 30 minutes or less.